Welcome to the first episode of the European True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa. As I'm new to this whole podcasting thing, I expect the first few episodes to be a bit rocky, so please bear with me while I learn the ropes. Also, as my native language is English, a lot of the pronunciation of names and places will be far from perfect, but I will always do my best. You can find images related to this case on our Instagram page, EuroTrueCrime, which is linked in the episode description. Today's episode takes us to the Netherlands, a country in northwestern Europe which is known for its flat landscape of canals, tulip fields, windmills and cycling routes. Our story takes us north of the capital city of Amsterdam, to the lush province of Friesland, and into a peaceful village called Zwaagwesteinde. It's early on the morning of the 1st of May, 1999, when 17-year-old Alfie Klosterman is awoken by her sister. She is told that Bauke Vatstra, the father of her best friend, is on the phone and asking to speak to her. Bauke tells her that 16-year-old Mariana hadn't returned home the night before and wanted to know if she had stayed the night at Afi's, a common occurrence between the two teenage girls. Afi immediately knows that something is terribly wrong, because no, Mariana had not slept over. Mariana had a great relationship with her parents and would never have stayed out for the night without them knowing exactly where she was and who she was with. After getting off the phone with Bauke, Afi called her then-boyfriend to tell him about Mariana's disappearance and that they needed to search for her. A short while later, Afi, her boyfriend and her sister set off in the car to try to find Mariana. While driving around the neighbouring village of Feinkloster, Afi notices something glittering in the dike alongside the road. They pulled over to see what it was and discovered that it had been a steering wheel that had caught Afi's attention. Beyond the dike lay a pasture. Afi was scared of what they might find in there and also scared of what her sister might see. So leaving the girls at the car, Afi's boyfriend headed into the pasture. After heading roughly 50 meters into the field, he let out a horrific scream, dropped to his knees, and shouted that she was there. He had found Mariana. Afi asked her boyfriend to check for a pulse, and he replied that he couldn't. Mariana's throat had been cut, and she was stone cold. In that moment, Afi knew that nothing would be the same ever again. While Afi was out searching for Mariana, the Fatsras had contacted the police and told them about their daughter not returning home the night before informing them that they had called all of her friends and she was nowhere to be found. Chief of Police Dunstra and Officer von Reis headed to the home at the family's request. The parents were clearly incredibly worried and this was an unusual situation for the sleepy suburb and out of character for Mariana. Back in Feinkloster, Afi's boyfriend told her to call 112, the Dutch emergency number. Afi was absolutely distraught at the discovery of her best friend's body, she had managed to dial the three numbers, but was unable to press the call button due to how violently she was shaking. Her boyfriend took the phone from her, returned to Mariana, and made the call. Afi desperately wanted to go to her friend and be with her, but she chose to stay by the car and with her sister, determined to protect her as much as possible from their awful discovery. At this point, officers Downsra and Van Reis, now arriving to the family home, get the call that Mariana had been found. The police officers, alongside Mariana's father and brother, headed into the pasture together, where a small crowd was now starting to form, and there they were informed about Mariana's slashed throat. What they previously believed to be a simple incident of a teenager not being where they should be had suddenly turned into a brutal murder investigation. Officer von Reis confirmed that Mariana was deceased. She had been found laying on her stomach, bloody and naked except for her bra which was bound around her neck. The officers secured the crime scene, and once medical personnel arrived, they were able to move Mariana's body. They turned her onto her side, and for the first time, they were able to see the full extent of her injuries, 
Her throat was described as being cut out and above the wound was a black lace choker necklace, an accessory widely popular with teenagers at the time. Back in town, investigative detective Jakob Dijkstra got the call from his boss that he was needed at a crime scene. Upon inquiring about the nature of the case, he was casually told, it'll turn out to be the boyfriend who did it, I'll see you back here on Monday, and thus began the investigation into a case that would take over a decade to be solved. The team of 20 investigators quickly realized that this was not going to be a simple murder investigation. The crime seemed too gruesome to be the work of a teenage boyfriend and had taken place on Koningensdag, a national holiday where hordes of people were out celebrating the Queen's birthday. The public was shocked and outraged by the crime and the media heavily covered the investigation, leading to a large amount of tips being reported that all had to be followed up on. The investigators began to piece together the first record of events leading up to the murder. Mariana had been working during the day at the local supermarket, but afterwards her brother dropped her off at the Paradiso Bar and Column where she met up with her friends. Back in 1999, the legal drinking age in the Netherlands was 16, and by this point, the friends had been celebrating most of the day and had already consumed a fair amount of alcohol, so Mariana was left the only sober one. Mariana's friends were ready to head home after a long day of partying, but as she had only just arrived, Mariana still wanted to stay out and enjoy the night, so she decided to meet up with her boyfriend Spencer and his friends. They were also in column, but once they grouped up, they decided to take their bikes and go to another village called Bautenpost. Mariana didn't have her bike with her because her brother had dropped her off, so she rode there on the back of her boyfriend's bike. At some point, Mariana had wanted her own bike and to ride by herself, so a bike was stolen from the railway station and that was the bike that Mariana used and was later found near her body. Over the course of the investigation, many different versions would be told about how and with whom Mariana left column. Detectives believe that at some point Mariana chose to separate and continue the evening alone, although it is not known why. Friends and family found this incredibly strange. It was agreed that she would take a cab home, and it was completely out of character for Mariana to choose to go out into the night alone. It was well known by her friends and family that she was scared of the dark, and that she would never have headed home alone at night. Nevertheless, she headed down that fateful road where her body was later discovered. The road was closed and the area was searched by helicopters in the canine unit, looking for any clue or trace of what had happened and who had been involved. When examining the pasture where Mariana was found, detectives noticed fresh tracks left by bicycles in the field. There appeared to be the tracks of two bicycles heading in, but only one headed out, supporting the theory that only one perpetrator was involved, but who went into that field with her that night? On the 4th of May, three days into the investigation, the case of Mariana's rape and murder was detailed on Dutch television programme Opsporing Resort. Viewers were urged to call if they had any information about the crime. This led the public and media to believe that detectives had already hit a dead end with the investigation. Mariana's boyfriend Spencer was the obvious first suspect, but he voluntarily gave his DNA to investigators so that he could be ruled out. While awaiting DNA results, the investigation still had to continue. With no other leads or suspects, investigators had to consider that this was a random, sexually motivated attack and that the perpetrator had killed Mariana in an effort to prevent himself from ever being identified. The following day, the station was flooded with people believing that they had information crucial to the case or knew who had been involved. Father accused son and brother accused brother, but mostly people pointed the finger at a nearby asylum seeker centre and these rumours spread throughout the surrounding villages. It is understandable that people don't want to believe that it is possible that someone from their small, tight-knit community would be capable of such a heinous crime, but these accusations appeared to be mostly fueled by xenophobia. 
Detectives did, of course, investigate the Asylum Seekers Centre, along with all other possibilities. They began profiling the culprit and attempting to put together a list of likely suspects. They had found sperm in Mariana's vagina and anus, providing them with the DNA needed to convict, and all they needed to do was find a match. Five days after Mariana had been murdered, her funeral was held in her birthplace of Zwach Westeinde, where more than 1,500 people signed the condolences register. Local stores even closed early as everyone in town was attending the funeral. This was also the first and last time that responding officer von Reis attended the funeral of a victim. The villagers were filled with sadness and also fear. Young and old alike were afraid to be alone at night. In a small town where everyone knows everyone, it's not difficult to feel like it could have easily been you or your child. Most people knew Mariana. Most of the young people in town had been at the same party with her, and everyone was terrified of it happening again. On the 7th of May, Afi's family, the Klostermans, organized a silent march in protest of the atrocious crime. Jan Klostermann, Afi's father, handled continuous phone calls, not only from the press but also from people all over the country offering their support and condolences. Afi and her friends blew up thousands of balloons for the event, which an estimated 20,000 people attended. A lot of people wondered whether or not the murderer was there, walking among them. At the end of the event, Afi and Balka gave their beautiful prepared speeches honouring Mariana, and the mayor made a plea for the perpetrator to turn themselves in. The investigation didn't seem to be making any progress, and Balka was quickly losing faith in the detectives. He contacted Peter de Vries, a well-known crime reporter, and asked for his help in solving the case of his brutally murdered daughter. At this point, about two weeks had passed since Mariana had been found. Although Peter wanted to help, it was still so early in the case, and he didn't want to get in the way of police. He told Balka that he needed to give the police time to solve the case, and that in six weeks it might all be over, and he might not even be needed. Balka agreed to give the investigators time and that he would reach out to Peter again at a later date if there was no progress in the case. In the meanwhile, detectives were still exploring multiple different theories, attempting to leave no stone unturned, but the public, the media and the families still believed that the crime was too heinous to have been committed by anyone local, by any Westerner. And with their belief that the cutting of the throat was somehow an Eastern act, scrutiny surrounded the asylum seekers' centre that housed approximately 400 refugees. Many rumours started to spread throughout the community. One rumour circulating was that Mariana was secretly dating a boy from the refugee centre, a rumour which her friends denied, saying that Mariana was head over heels in love with Spencer. They'd been together for three or four months, which is a pretty big deal for a 16-year-old. Another rumour was that there was a 15-year-old refugee named Fayek seen with Mariana at the Ringo Bar in Fainkloster on Queen's Day. The story goes that he tried to dance with Mariana, but she didn't like this and that Fayek then made a gesture at her, moving his hand back and forth across his throat. Investigators quickly found him and interrogated him. He confirmed the story about the hand gesture and when asked for a DNA sample, he agreed and it was sent for testing. While the public continued to speculate and point fingers, investigators analysed the evidence. It appeared that Mariana had entered that field willingly with the perpetrator, making them believe that she might have known her killer. This was in the time before family liaison officers, and the relationship between Mariana's family and the investigative team was continuing to deteriorate. The family was not kept up to date with the investigation. They believed not enough progress was being made, and that the detectives weren't looking closely enough at the refugee centre. On the 12th of May, additional security was deployed to the Asylum Seekers Centre, due to the unrest among the locals and their animosity towards the refugees. 
Tension was building and there were concerns that some might seek revenge or pursue vigilante justice. The following day was Ascension Day, and now 12 days since the discovery of Mariana's body, this was the first day that reports of aggression towards the center was recorded. And what had started with crowds gathering and protesting outside of the center was now escalating rapidly. Angry locals had begun to throw Molotov cocktails into the center in an attempt to set it on fire. The mobile defense team remained on site for multiple days and nights to try and control the chaos and violence. Shortly afterwards, the DNA results were in. Both Spence and Fayek were not a match to the DNA found at the crime scene and were ruled out as suspects. Then, 32-year-old Pete Smith was arrested on suspicion of premeditated murder. He was from Zwachwesinder, Mariana's own village. He was described as an alcoholic and was unpopular among the residents. The arrest was made due to a report from a witness that they had seen him on the night of the murder in bloodied clothes. With Pete in a jail cell, his name in every newspaper and every detail of his life and circumstances scrutinized by the media and the public, it then came to light that the witness who had reported him had made the story up. Pete had also given a DNA sample for testing, which was not a match. He was released and ruled out as a suspect, but as we all know, being exonerated doesn't necessarily wipe the slate clean in the eyes of the public. The next suspect emerged as a witness reported having seen a man hiking near the railway tracks that night. Once word got around that he was a person of interest in the case, the man called the police and identified himself as the walker. He said that he lived with his parents in Franeke, a town in the west of Friesland, and on Queen's Day he had decided to go for a walk, and that is how he came to be in Feinkloster. That is quite a long walk. In fact, Franeke is 40 kilometers away from Feinkloster, and according to Google Maps, it would take around 8 hours to walk that route in one direction. A colleague of the unnamed walker also revealed to police that they had been told by him that he had done something terrible that could not be reversed, and so the walker was arrested and interrogated. During the interrogation, detectives found out that the man was not mentally stable, and were convinced that this had to be the right guy this time, but they got a DNA sample from him, and again, it wasn't a match, and he too was ruled out as a suspect. Detectives examined the records from the Asylum Seeker Centre. Among the records was a register where refugees signed in and out of the centre when they left the grounds, and also stated where they were going. They found that during the time of the murder, there were two men who were signed out of the centre but had not stated where they were intending to go or what they were intending to do. They were 26-year-old Ali and 19-year-old Muhammad. At the time, Balkafatra had reached out to crime reporter Peter de Vries once more and pleaded with him to get involved. Peter kept his word and started looking into the murder case and he learned about the two refugees who were unaccounted for on the night of the murder. On the 1st of July, Peter's popular TV show aired an episode about Mariana, informing the public that the police had photos of the wanted refugees but had not yet released them. He also revealed that the same refugees were confirmed to have been at the same nightclub as Mariana that night, the Paradiso where her brother had originally dropped her off after work to meet up with her friends. It was also reported that they had left the nightclub shortly after Mariana. This put the Asylum Seekers Centre back in the spotlight. And with the two men unable to be found, detectives utilized their connections to look for the men internationally, believing that they had possibly left the country. Tension continued to build between the local community and the refugees. In early October, a small plane dropped flyers over the villages, announcing that a silent protest opposing the Asylum Seekers Center was taking place on the evening of October 7th. The flyers brandished the text, There is danger for us and our children. Many people attended the protest, including the desperate and frustrated Balka Fadstra, who gave a speech at the event. 
In the court of public opinion, any and all asylum seekers had been found guilty of Mariana's rape and murder. The mayor held a meeting to address the community and speak out against the xenophobia, resulting in rioting and members of the community attacking and egging him, causing the police to have to step in to protect him and end the meeting. On the 9th of October, it was reported that Ali had been found in Istanbul and arrested by Turkish police. His identity was confirmed by comparing his fingerprints with the ones on file for him at the Asylum Seeker Center, and then his DNA was collected and tested, but yet again another negative match was returned and Ali was ruled out as a suspect. The detectives had hit yet another dead end, and no one knew where the investigation could be headed next. Despite being cleared early on, many people still had a lot of questions for Mariana's boyfriend, 18-year-old Spencer. Spencer had promised that he would see to it that Mariana got home safe and that he would arrange a taxi for her when she was ready to go home, which obviously never happened. When interrogated immediately after the murder, he said that it was Mariana's decision that she would cycle home by herself, something that everyone close to Mariana says is completely out of character for her. She was scared of being alone in the dark and never would have chosen to cycle home by herself. Now a few months into the investigation, Mariana's parents spoke out on Peter de Vries's TV show about how breaking his promise ultimately had led to her death, and that every single time they had spoken with him, he had had a new and conflicting story about what had happened that evening. Peter de Vries then interviewed Spencer and had him recount the events of that fateful night. He said that he saw Mariana at the Paradiso Bar and Column, and that from there Mariana went ahead of them to Bauta Post, and that he went alone on his bicycle. While en route, Spencer says that he saw two teenagers on the side of the road appearing to be messing about with a bicycle, but that no one else was with them. In the interview with Peter de Vries, he stated that he recognized the two people. They were friends of his and Mariana. However, this contradicted his statement to police. He had told the police that he had had no idea who the two people were, and that it was too dark to see them clearly. It was all very suspicious and didn't make any sense, but at the end of the day, Spencer had willingly given his DNA and that had proven his innocence. On the 20th of December 1999, eight months since the murder, investigators asked people of the public to volunteer a total of 150 DNA samples. They had wanted to collect as much DNA as possible and do large-scale DNA testing, but the Public Prosecution Service had set a limit and said that they could only collect the 150 samples for testing and no more. The 150 men were out of Mariana's circle of acquaintances, people who the police had come across at some point in the investigation, people known to frequent sex workers and escort services, and also people deemed likely to be sex offenders. The much smaller than desired group of DNA samples was sent away for testing and the results came back that none of the samples matched the murderer's DNA. Almost a year later, in November of 2000, the case had seemingly come to a standstill. Peter de Vries guided the Fazra family in confronting the Public Prosecution Service over the issue of being unable to do large-scale DNA testing. There had been cases where this had solved crimes in other countries, such as Germany and England, where the culprit themselves had willingly given their DNA for testing. Why not do it here in the Netherlands? The Public Prosecution Service gave reasons such as privacy and protection of the people and stated that the investigators' beliefs were aligned with that of the Public Prosecution Service, which was of course a lie. The investigative team had been asking to do large-scale DNA testing for the last year, but investigators hid this private struggle from the public and instead refused to comment on the statement given by the representative of the Public Prosecution Service. By July 2001, and now over two years since the murder had been committed, 
Investigators stated that they had created a profile of the suspect and were once again pushing for large-scale DNA testing. They wanted to start by testing all men between the ages of 20 and 45 within a 5-kilometer area of where the crime had occurred. Again, their request was denied, and with that final nail in the coffin, Mariana's case went cold. Detectives packed up everything they had gathered so far and handed it over to the cold case team. Mariana's family and friends did the best that they could to continue living their lives while they hoped and prayed that some new information would come to light and that they would eventually be able to get some degree of closure and justice for Mariana. 2010. Nine years later and 11 years since the horrific rape and murder of 16-year-old Mariana, her best friend Afi is all grown up. She's married, she's had children, and she's remained close with Mariana's family. Mariana's family was happy for Afi, of course, but it was also incredibly difficult to see what Mariana would never be able to have. Mariana would always remain a 16-year-old girl. Bauke had done everything he could to keep the case alive and on the public's mind and continued to appear on TV to advocate for Mariana and other victims. In this year, a 3D specialist team was formed and they created a detailed overview of the crime scene and all of the evidence gathered. The exciting new technology brought the spotlight onto the case again and opened the doors for Peter to once again have discussions about the need for large-scale DNA testing. This time he was met with more enthusiasm and the project gained momentum. The legislation had been drastically changing over the last decade and it finally seemed possible that they would soon be able to do the testing that they had been longing to do since the beginning. On the 6th of September 2012, a law was finally passed allowing for genealogical DNA to be used in criminal cases, meaning it was now possible for investigators to legally do large-scale DNA testing comparing Mariana's murderous DNA against the samples collected by comparing their Y chromosome to find a familial match. There was a press conference asking eligible men to provide their DNA for testing, and Mariana's family were hopeful that this would finally be what led to the capture of the murderer. They were expecting to test around 8,000 DNA samples, but among the public there was some hesitation. People were concerned about privacy and what would happen with their DNA. How do they know for sure that it will be destroyed immediately after testing and not stored somewhere? But despite their suspicion about what the police or the government might do with their DNA, people were swayed by their desire to finally have an answer to this heartbreaking case. And in some cases, people volunteered their DNA because they were worried that they would look suspicious if they didn't. And so it was that 90% of the men who were requested to submit their DNA did, and the massive testing effort began in a lab equipped to test around 400 samples per week. Less than a month after testing began, on the 18th of November 2012, they had a match, and before the day was over, they would have Mariana's killer in custody. Most surprisingly, it wasn't a familial match, it was a direct hit. The murderer had voluntarily given his own DNA for testing, just like in the German and English cases Peter had referenced. 45-year-old Jasper Steringer was a local white man of Dutch origin. He was married, had two children, and lived in the village of Oudwalde on a cattle ranch, a mere two and a half kilometers away from the location where Mariana was found. When the request for DNA samples for genealogical testing came, Jasper knew that he had a lot of family within the five-kilometer radius that would willingly offer their DNA, and so it was only a matter of time before he would be found out. His family was an integral part of the community, and after all this time, he had continued living there. On the 28th of March 2013, the case went to trial, and the public finally got to learn about what happened that horrific night 14 years prior. 
According to Jasper, on the evening of the 30th of April, 1999, he was at the farm milking his cows. His children were upstairs in the house asleep, and he told his wife that he would sleep downstairs that night, as he expected that one of his cows would be giving birth and he would need to be ready to go and assist. After milking the cows, he started back to the house with the intention of going to bed, but he changed his mind. He got on his bicycle and decided to go for a ride to clear his mind, as he had often done before. It was revealed on these night rides, Jasper would often cycle to the neighbouring province of Groningen to visit sex workers. Although he denies having gone out on the night in question with any sort of sexual frustration or sexual intent. He had had a few restless nights due to the pregnant cows and newborn calves on the farm, as well as general family stress. His mentioning that he had a lot on his mind was part of his defence strategy. He was trying to convince the judge of a lack of premeditation, calm deliberation or quiet consultation. He continues to say that while out on his bike ride, he crossed paths with Mariana, and he said that out of nowhere, he had a sudden thought to himself, you are mine. He turned around and caught up with her, pulling her from her bike and locking his arm around her face, covering her mouth. Mariana bit down hard on his arm, and Jasper pulled a knife out and held it to her neck. Knowing that her life was in danger, Mariana had no choice but to cooperate. He dragged her into the field, told her to remove her jacket, forced her to her knees, and then forced her to perform oral sex on him, the knife still at her throat. Afterwards, he started to remove Mariana's clothes with the help of his knife, and he forced her down onto the coat where he raped her. Jasper stated that after ejaculating, he came to his senses and realized what he was doing. He thought about his family and how this would affect them, and he began to panic. He turned Mariana over, grabbed her bra from the grass, wrapped it around her neck, and began to strangle her with it. Jasper cried while telling the court that when he was unable to end Mariana's life by strangulation, he then used his knife to cut only once across her throat. The judges corrected him. He had in fact cut Mariana's throat a total of three times. On the 19th of April, the verdict was ready. Jasper had already pleaded guilty to the case, so it was not a question of guilt or innocence. It was a question of how much time he would serve. At the time, the longest possible sentence for murder in the Netherlands was 20 years. Jasper Seringer was sentenced to 18 years in prison for the brutal and horrific premeditated murder and multiple rapes of Mariana Fartstra. However, due to time served and good behaviour, he is due to be released from prison just next year in 2023, meaning he would have only served a total of 10 years in prison for these heinous acts. Mariana was described as joyful, outgoing, and full of life. She was creative, loved to sing, and wanted to become a hairstylist. Her memory lives on in the hearts of her loved ones. Her father, Balka Fatra, continues to advocate for the victims of crimes. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. You can find European True Crime on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon. Links are available in the episode description.